Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Toro. For more than a century with cutting-edge turf equipment and irrigation solutions, Toro has had your front nine covered and your back nine too. In fact, Toro's always had your back, period. Toro is as committed to your long-term success as tour pros are committed to their shot. That's down to top-notch customer support from Toro and its dedicated local distributors both of whom are passionate about delivering turf equipment and irrigation solutions that solve real-world problems. Follow at ToroGolf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor today. I am uh, excited to release today's episode of the Superintendent Series. Today we have Roger Knoll on the podcast. Roger is a legend in St. Louis. He is a retired golf course superintendent He now does golf architecture work in the area, but he has worked at about 20 uh, St. Louis area clubs in total, worked about five of them as a superintendent, and then he has been a consulting architect at a bunch. As well as being a superintendent, he uh, is a great player in his own right. He won the superintendent uh, championship a few times. You know, a few other times he, he had chances to win, but he chose to do other things. It's a it's a great story. Roger's got tons of tons of uh, information, wealth of information, knowledge on uh, many subjects in golf, and uh, all around great guy. Here is our episode with Roger Null. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. You've been, uh, I, I started that one, I was at one of my wife's uh, family's weddings and I asked everybody all night long what your favorite fruit was. It, it, people got so into it, you know, <laughs> Really? people were, you know, everybody's got an opinion on that. Sure. Why is peach the best? Uh, I don't know. It's sweet, juicy. It's hard to peel. That's the only downside. You peel the peach? You don't I, just eat the I, fuzz? No, I'm not a fuzz eater. So <laughs> I peel the peach, and it's awesome on ice cream. It's good on ice cream. Yeah. Vanilla ice cream. Vanilla ice cream yeah. with peach. It's, uh, how'd you get started? You're, you, I couldn't, I've obviously known you now for a while, uh, and then I'm at the GIS show. And I'm looking at this wall of all the all the champions of the superintendent golf tournament. And I just see Roger Null, Roger Null, Roger Null, Roger Null. You say you only won it three times. I saw your name up there at least six. Uh, not really, but the, I, I did win it three. I don't know, they might be they might be giving you more titles than you think you, uh, you yeah, maybe won. I'll take them, you know. <laughs> so a win's a win, right? How'd you start playing golf? Uh... I started back, well, my big brother played. I, I, I had an older brother uh, that was a good player, good junior player. And, you know, you always want to do what your older brother does. Uh, we were a big sports family. My 
dad was a football coach, and my brother went on to be a, actually an Iowa Hall of Fame football coach. And uh, so I think I was 12 years old, just finished Little League Baseball, and wasn't sure what I was going to do for the summer. And my dad said, you can either play golf or go to the next league in baseball. And I said, I'm going to play golf this summer. And that's what I ended up doing, a little nine-hole course in Iowa, in Lamar's, Iowa, uh, a WPA course that they built back then. Uh, cool little nine. And uh, folks would just drop me off there in the morning and pick me up late at night. I'd help uh, around the pro shop, or I used to change cups once in a while, uh, stuff like that. Shag balls for the basketball coach, who was the pro, would give lessons. And... Uh, that was it. Just kept playing golf. Golf course still around there? It is. Uh, actually, uh, two years ago, I went back uh, for my brother's funeral and went up with my nephew, Mike Nall, who's also superintendent at Norwood Hills Country Club here in St. Louis. We drove up. I hadn't been back, oh, I don't know, for years and years. And uh, it's still there, but they built another uh, 18 I couldn't tell you what year, but they kept the old nine, and it still looked the same. Is it is the old nine? Is it a good nine? Uh, yeah, it is. It, it was really it was a fun nine. Uh, the first three holes, the first hole was a short par four. That uh, when you got older, you could dri- you could drive the green. Uh, second hole was the bottom of kind of a triangle, a par three, and then the third hole would come back to the clubhouse, a pretty good slight dogleg left par four. And when we were kids, there would always be an argument on the third green. The guys that played good wanted to keep going. The guys that had a bad start, they wanted to all go start over, you know. So (laughs) you'd fight over (laughs) what you were going to do. It's a perfect way to settle a match that was tied, too. You play the three holes. Absolutely. Like yeah. a little late-night loop. Yeah, right. Uh, so right. You, so then uh, so you played you played football. You got a football scholarship. Right. When uh, After my sophomore year, my dad was out of the coaching business and bought a feed store in early Iowa, which was just a very small town. Uh about 70 miles east of, of Lamar's in Sioux City. Uh, e- my graduating... E-A-R-L-E-Y, right? Yeah. I've seen the sign. Yeah. Driven, the, driven my graduating past. class was 24 boys and four girls, but we had a hell of a football team. Slim Pickens, you know, we, on the dating scene. Yeah, we were, <laughs> we were undefeated, number one in our division in the state, and... Uh, yeah, I got a football scholarship at a small school back at Lamar's uh, where I played uh, played a year and a half. Uh, I got, uh, there was about four of us. It was kind of a strict church school, a religious school. Uh, and the athletic director and coach caught us drinking beer the night before a game. So... I lost my scholarship for that year, <laughs> and so didn't have a lot of money, so I quit at the end of the semester, and uh, the summer before, I'd been working at Sioux City Country Club, 
So I don't know who did it, but it's an old, old golf course. Uh, and so I went back there and worked and, and didn't really know what I was going to do. And the superintendent said, you ought to go to Iowa State and get into turf. And I was kind of, what the hell is turf? I really didn't know. But I took a chance, and that's how it all got started, really. So what, what year was that? Uh, well, let's see. I graduated from high school 62. 64. Yeah, been 64. Right, uh, yeah, because I went there for three years, uh, kind of ran out of money, needed a job. My uh, advisor, I'd had all my turf, uh, my soil classes, agronomic classes and horticulture, all this stuff. Uh, just had, you know, some other junk I had to take. So my advisor got me an assistant job at the Rock Island Arsenal Golf Club in 67. And halfway through the year, the older superintendent's wife passed away, and he really didn't want to keep doing it. So they gave me the job as superintendent. Or back then it was greenskeeper. We weren't superintendents in those days. When did that change? Oh, man, good question. Uh, 67, probably... Not too long after, probably around the 70, be my guess. That's a good question, though. I, I can't remember. So All I remember is I can't figure out why, because, and I don't know why we're superintendents or director of agronomy or whatever. We're just caretakers of the of the golf course. You know? Yeah. It's uh. So you're t- you're like 23. And you you got you're running a golf course. Yep, had no idea what the hell I was doing. <laughs> anything you look back on now and think, oh god. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of things. Anything just egregious, or is there anything also on the flip side that you did really well that you don't have no clue why you did that right? No, and I th- I think it was my golf background because uh, I was playing. Until we moved to early, I played high school golf, and uh, then early didn't have any, but Iowa has a tremendous tournament schedule on all these little nine-hole courses. You could play a, you could play one tournament on Saturday and go to another town and play another one on Sunday. They'd be nine-hole course. You'd play 27 holes. Uh, you'd go around it three times, and that was the tournament. And then, then they had... You know, their majors, the State Am and uh, the Northwest Am and the Lake, I uh, forget what the name of it is, but it several bigger tournaments that were 54 holes. And so I played a lot of competitive golf, and I think that's what held it together in my first few years as, as a greenskeeper, that I knew what it should look like, and I knew how I wanted it to play, and... Uh, it had to help you with membership, too. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I was single then, so, you know, after work, I, I would, you know, go home, clean up, and then come back in the evening and play. And uh, I used to play in the evening. There was this dentist that used to come out in the evening. He was a real good player. He played in a USAM once. Uh, his name was Dr. Paul Barton, and he was – close friends with Jack Fleck 
and actually caddied for Jack Fleck when he when Fleck beat Ben Hogan in the Open at Olympic Club. Which Unbelievable. Was pretty cool. And he kind of mentored me. He would, I'd go over and have dinner with he and his wife every now and then. And, uh, you know, he kind of refined my golf. You know, I was, you know, growing up in a little town in Iowa, you just play. You didn't know much about the game. So he taught me quite a bit. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I even look now, like, when I see kids playing how much like little things they just don't know about the game of golf and right it's just it's crazy how i feel like everybody has every good player has like a, a player a older you know person in their life that helped them learn how to play golf yeah. you know because there's so many things you just don't learn and the other you know that first year the other neat thing that happened when they gave me the job obviously i was scared didn't know what the hell was going on and that i don't know whether it was the first day that i was soup or greenskeeper head greenskeeper or that week i know it was the first week they had one of their big member guests and uh, or maybe as a member member tournament i don't really recall but afterwards i happened to be walking through the locker room and the first guy I ran into, I still remember his name, Whitey Barnard. He was the club champion at the time, and he just lit into me telling me that it was the worst golf course he'd ever seen it. He's never seen it in worse shape. I mean, I wanted to crawl in the locker. And he went on through, and then the next guy came through named Don Lundahl. He was a higher handicap. And he just went on and on how great the golf course was, how perfect. And I'm like, what in the hell? So I go down to the pro shop and talk to the pro. And I tell him, and he says, oh, that's pretty simple. He said, Whitey just shot 80. And Don Lundahl just shot his best score ever, 76, and beat him out of X amount of dollars. And it was a good lesson right there that, you know, you just put your head down and do what you think is right. And... So, so what was different about it that that forced those reactions or created them? Do you know? Well, the one played but Whitey, was just the club the, champion, just... shoots 80, played terrible, <laughs> so he's pissed off. And Don Lundell, who was, I think, like a 12 or 14, I would guess, It wasn't anything room. with the golf course. No, it just was the, the it was just per, the perception of the, how they the, played. The perception of how they played. It's an amazing yeah. thing in America how how golfers so much of their golf experience and what they think of a golf course or an experience at a golf course revolves around how they personally play. Right, and you got to realize that you know in 1967, uh, you know what was considered good is a lot different than today. I mean, you know, golf courses were rougher back then. Green speeds were slower. Uh, you know, there was no irrigation in the in the roughs. Uh, which, you know, in my opinion, there shouldn't be anyway. So, yeah, talk about, talk about all the the changes. I, I we can go kind of go along the career path more, but I, I'm curious about, you know, what <coughs> what have been the biggest changes that you've seen in turf over your over your time in it? Obviously, you know, technology is a big thing, but yeah, I mean, probably. Five, ten years ago, I would have said equipment, you know, the tool, tools we have. But 
you know, they kind of evolved with the demands. They evolved the same as the golf courses evolved as far as conditioning and demands that the public wants, what the golfer wants. Uh, but I would say the biggest difference right now is access to information, technology. I mean, these guys here in St. Louis, I don't know how many are on their uh, group text, but, you know, if they if something's going on on their green that they don't know, I mean, they'll just text it out. And everybody in town, you know, if somebody knows or going to the GCSA website, finding answers or just Googling answers. I mean, it's, you know, in my day, you'd have to pick up a phone and call some superintendent that you know, and he's probably not there. Then you might get in your car and drive and try to find him. Then he wouldn't know what the hell anyway, so then you try to call and some university. Explain it. You wouldn't have, like, a, a phone to show him a picture unless you, you took a picture of You wouldn't have a phone. <laughs> Absolutely. But, again, turf stress wasn't as bad then either. You know, we, we make our own problems with the stress that we're putting on the turf at the low heights of cut, the rolling, the, everything we're doing. But yet technology has helped and equipment has helped to combat that. With the – obviously – there's never it, the way golf courses are presented have been never been more intricate and, and as looking at it through the lens of a golfer do you think it's gotten easier or has it gotten tougher because of the agronomics as the game the game yeah boy i i, I don't i don't see it I don't see it that it's changed that much scoring-wise. Uh, I mean, with the equipment, today's equipment and the big debates and everything, yeah, it's probably easier for the average guy to hit it. But yet conditions weren't as, you know, maybe as difficult back then. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. The game the game's just as much fun today as it was back then, I can tell you that. For me. For me anyway. Yeah, I always wonder. I feel like some of the things could make it easier, like fairways running more, but then it could also make it more tough because it's tougher to keep the ball in the fairway. Right. And then the same thing goes for the green, where you know, they're smoother and faster, but that speed can make them a lot more tough, you know. Right. Uh you know, if you ask me, would I sooner play today or back in the 60s, I enjoyed it more in the 60s. Why is that? I don't know. It was, it was just, you know, maybe I was younger and and it, it just was a lot more fun. You know, it was more creative. Uh the expectations, I guess, maybe weren't as strong then. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's uh, so you you went to Cedar Rapids then after uh, Rock Island. After the Rock Island Arsenal, yeah, I was at the Arsenal. 
uh, from 67 to 74, and then I went to Cedar Rapids Country Club until 1980. And it, it, at the time, you didn't know that it was, you know, this Don, uh, Don Ross golf course. You weren't into architecture at this point. I, I wasn't. I knew it was a Donald Ross. I mean, I'd heard that. I really didn't. I hadn't done a lot of reading of the history. Um, you hadn't traveled a ton either. And I hadn't. Point. No, I hadn't. I mean, I hadn't been out of Iowa uh, that I recall. Uh, <laughs> Not even across the Illinois border? Well, obviously <laughs> I was because I was in the Quad Cities. I was just, Actually, I've spent too much time across the border, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't know a lot uh, about it. I, I knew it was a cool golf course. There was a lot of cool things there, uh, and it was pretty. Yeah, it was really hadn't changed. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure the green size is probably a trunk, even before I got there, but, uh, you know, they hadn't done much to it. Now, the bottom holes, the lower holes flooded a lot, and while I was there, they had an engineering firm come in and and put these small lakes in mm-hmm. uh, that really didn't fit the property very well, but, you know, from what I've seen of the restoration, and hopefully I can get up there this year and, and see Tom Feller and see it with my own eyes, it really looks like they've done a magnificent job. And it's a neat place. It's yeah. really neat. And uh, obviously, Tom was on earlier on this pod. It's, right. It's, uh, it's, uh, you assured me that you were not the one that planted all the trees. <laughs> I did not plant all the trees. <laughs> did you plant a lot of trees anywhere? Uh, not really. When I came to uh, Old Warson, I planted a few at Old Warson, but... They had done this huge planning program. In fact, I remember the one, he wasn't the Greens chairman, but he had been, and he was so proud of all of this tree planting that he had done. And uh, now, hopefully, they're taking most of them down. Talk, talk about just the, 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 that time. I think a lot of like our listeners, they look at the trees and they don't understand how they got there, but... You know, at the time, trees were almost a thing of prestige, right? Absolutely, yeah. It was, uh, you know, like I say, I was at a Donald Ross golf course, but when I had the opportunity to come to Old Warson, I was ecstatic because I was going to go to a Robert Trent Jones golf course. So 1980, Robert Trent Jones was still known as the man, and... uh uh, fortunately, I think this is one of his better golf courses. Uh, Old Warson has really been good to me and is a great golf course. Uh, but the tree thing, you know, I mean, they used to have memorial trees, and it, it was just the thing to do. That uh, You know, the architects took the landscape that didn't have much trees and fit their golf course to it. But when they left... I don't think there's the knowledge that we have today of what what they were trying to do and what their vision was. And so committees saw, I don't know what courses that they saw that made them think that they needed to tree line all of them. 
And instead of just doing groups here and there that would have been okay, you know, most of the courses, they would tree line it from tea to green, which, you know, ruin a lot of turf. And and it's, it, uh, a lot of people tie it to Ben Hogan, I feel like. Boy, that's really hurting me. He's my man. Well, they tie it because he hit it so straight. They yeah, thought I know that what you the, mean. Yeah. It's, it's the funny thing with golf. It's always counterintuitive. Yeah. You know, by just making it narrower and it just played more into the best, the guy who hit the straightest hands. Right. Right. But if you, but if they would look at how he took apart Carnoustie mm-hmm. when he won there, they would think different on how he could use strategy to his advantage. It's, uh, so how did you decide, you, you know, you had barely left Iowa. You, right. You're going to move to St. Louis. Why, why the sudden, you know, I'm getting out of Iowa? Well, back then, probably the two best golf courses in Iowa was Wakanda at, uh, in Des Moines, which was a Langford Moreau golf course, and um, Cedar Rapids Country Club. So I really felt I was still fairly young and still felt, and I had felt like I'd probably reached the pinnacle. In Iowa, there was no place for me to move, and I was still young enough and restless enough that I just, that isn't what I wanted. I wanted to go on, and I thought, man, I'm going to the big city. And when I was in the, when I was in the quad cities, we used to go up to a lot of, several of the superintendents, uh, talks and, and conventions or whatever in in Chicago. So I used to see the really cool golf courses in Chicago. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to St. Louis, the same thing. And, uh, man, it's, it's a totally different world down here. Uh, it, St. Louis probably is the hardest place to grow grass in the country. Talk about that shock as as somebody who didn't. It, it almost sounds like you didn't really know what you were getting into. I did not know what I was getting into. Uh, the day I was going to interview, uh, I got there early and I took a drive around the golf course. There's a, a road, Trent Drive, that goes around the property. And it goes right by the 10th green. And, and I'm early in the morning and there's nobody playing. So I stopped the car and I thought, well, I'll just jump out and my soil probe and see what I got here and I stuck the probe in the ground and it went in about six to eight inches and hit solid rock hard clay and I could not get the probe any farther down on the ground must have been about eight inches because they could at least get a cup in the ground and I thought oh shit what the hell am I doing (laughs) but uh and then that first year 80 was one of the really hottest years on history i think they had 20 some days in in a row or 21 out of 25 days over 100 i still remember going to a fourth of july evening fireworks and i couldn't even see because my glasses would keep fogging up there was so much humidity so between you know everybody blames the climate which with the two rivers the humidity gets so strong but it's the soil also between the soil and the humidity and the heat. It's a tough place to grow, but uh, Zoysia has done a 
wonders for the for the uh, place. It was just getting started when I came here in '80. So everybody in the, before '80 was using bent, trying to grow bent. No, most of it was Bermuda. Okay, uh, that would just and you know there wasn't very many hybrid Bermudas back then. Uh, the main one was the, was either common Bermuda or U3 Bermuda, and you know they would have winter kill every year. And before it was worth a darn, it was August. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Wet Bermuda, wet dormant Bermuda is <laughs> about the least least enjoyable thing to play right. golf on in, right. in in the world. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, everybody was getting into zoysia conversions. Uh, and it's it's done a great thing there. We still have one, two, three in the in the area. We've got four bent grass golf courses. One one daily fee on the Illinois side that has a little better soil, and three on three country clubs, golf clubs, on the St. Louis on the Missouri side. So you cross the river. It's just way better soil. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I'm sure there's areas, but uh, where this golf course is, Gateway National, is a, is a lower area. And, uh, I mean, I can't tell you for sure, but just from being told that uh, the soils are better, and I do know Illinois has better, much better soil. How how do you – you told me a good story earlier today. You should retell about how you got the job down at Old Warson. Oh, at Old Warson. Um, well, my good friend from the Quad Cities, uh, Jack Litvey, was uh, superintendent of Crow Valley in the Quad Cities, and he had come down to St. Louis and got the job at St. Louis Country Club, so he told me about it. And back then in the in the 70s, um, Omana always sponsored some of the older people will remember this, but Amana sponsored all these tour players, and they would wear these Amana visors and caps. And one of the and the main spokesperson for them was Bob Golby. And Amana is right. Amana's factory is right near Cedar Rapids, and their CEO um, his name slips my mind. Uh, was a member at uh, Cedar Rapids Country Club and used to bring Bob over and play from time to time. I hadn't met him, but anyhow, he was friends with somebody that was on the either board or greens committee at Old Warson, and my name happened to get thrown out there, and, and he heard, and he told him that if you have a chance to get a hold of that guy, why well, you, you ought to get him. So Bob... Uh, the master master's champion's uh, word carried some weight, huh? Master's champion word carried some weight, and his friend. Once I got the job that summer, asked if I wanted to go over to St. Clair Country Club where Bob was uh, plays at to play, and so we went over there, and I was fortunate enough to uh, to beat him, and he's never asked me back over there, <laughs> but he's been a good friend. He's uh, He's a he's quite a gentleman. He would do he, he would be a great pod for you someday on uh, Fried Egg Pod. Yeah, well, maybe we'd do that before this year's yeah. Masters. Yeah, That's and a, you know, and I've been fortunate to know his son, Kai Goby, who, uh, as most of the listeners of this know, that Kai's 
one of the really great shapers in the country. Yeah, so you uh, you worked at Old Borson, and then you managed. How did you get? You know, the you did. You became a GM, but you also have gotten into golf architecture, where you've been. You've worked. You've been a golf architect on projects. How how did you kind of build and grow? You know, from superintendent, look at these other opportunities and say, I'm going to get out of the, you know, superintendent space, but not really out of it. You're still adjacent. How did you start to have these opportunities come your way? Well, well, I was at Old Warson. I, I, I started looking at golf courses and going around playing them, and some of it was through my amateur golf career. You know, I was fortunate enough playing some. U.S. Ams and some state or some mid Ams, and so saw some of the really cool golf courses. Uh, took a trip out to Long Island and saw uh, Shinnecock, uh, the National, Maidstone. Uh, left a big impression. So, is that when you kind of had like the aha moment that some some places were different? Was it that trip, or was right. it playing uh, in a U.S. Am or? No, that was kind of an aha moment to a degree, and I and I read uh, uh, what was it, Golf Club Atlas or no? Uh, oh, it was an old book. Is it the one the Witten one, the golf courses? No, uh, oh no, 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 no. That was uh, no. This is a book before, but Jeffrey Cornish. I went to one of his. Uh, two-day seminars and uh, got to know Jeffrey real well. What, what were those seminars? He, uh, he, there was a period of time where he was putting on these architecture seminars. He and uh, I think Robert Graves Muir was the other one that would do it with him. And they were two days. I went up to... For superintendents or for anybody? For anybody. Anybody. Uh, it was up in the Chicago area, St. Charles up there. Is there St. Charles? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 St. Charles Country Club's there. Yeah. The seminar was there. Uh, that taught me a lot. I still have his stuff. Uh, and obviously read his books. And then when I won this first superintendent's tournament in 83, uh, Ransom Company from England, always every two years put on a turf symposium worldwide symposium he'd bring they'd bring people from all the different countries over and the gcsa would send over a group of people and they would always send the winner of the championship uh for the last two years over so 83 was my first trip over there and that was really the big aha moment uh and since I was going over there, I was going to stay for a while. Past, and there was about a, and they had arranged for after the symposium, which was down in in uh, in England, we went up to St Andrews, and twelve superintendents from America played twelve superintendents from Scotland in a Ryder Cup, just a one day singles. Uh, match and we got to play a practice round obviously the day before well there was a uh, at Old Warson there happened to be this charity event 
that was going on with a bunch of the tour players. And one of the guys that would bring the tour players in was a former Walker Cupper from England. And I was telling him that I was going for the first time. And he said, well, you've, when you get there, St. Andrews, make sure you go to the caddy house and get Tip Anderson as your caddy. Do you know who Tip Anderson is? Uh-uh. Tip Anderson was Arnold Palmer's caddy in every British Open ever played that Arnie ever played in, and there was one that he couldn't make it, so he called Tip, and it was going to be at St. Andrews. He called Tip and said, I've got this good friend that's going to be up there to play in the Open, and he can't play a practice round. He's just flying in, and his name was Tony Lima. And Tony Lima wins the tournament, dedicates it to Tip. So the night we drove into St. Andrews, I just ran to the caddy shack, and the caddy master, he's like, ah, oh, Tip doesn't caddy for just anybody anymore. And so I figured, well, I'll just tote my own bag. So that morning, the practice round, I'm on the first tee getting ready to go. And this guy walks by and he says, hey, somebody here looking for Tip Anderson. And I said, that's me. So I had two days with Tip Anderson uh, and two nights and a lot of beer <laughs> <laughs> with Tip. And that was cool. I bet he has some stories. He had some great stories. Uh, I wish I could remember them all. I <laughs> wish, wish that would have been the day of a iPhone and you could have recorded them. But uh, that was cool. And then I drove around, played Nairn. A couple uh, went up. Uh, I met one of, got to be friends with one of the superintendents, Duncan Gray, and his wife Greta. And uh, he, at the time, he was superintendent at Prestwick St. Nichols. And I played Prestwick, which you talk about quirky and cool. That's probably the best. And then I made some more trips over there. And in the meantime, he got to be Superintendent LaHinch in uh, Ireland and uh, went over and stayed in his house on LaHinch for three days and played courses all around Ireland. So those things you know really stick in your mind uh, what was what was your reaction to the the way golf was presented in 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 the uk oh that's, at, from like especially from an agronomic standpoint well from an first of all how it's presented i'll give you that first then i'll give yeah. you a good example of agronomically uh how it's presented is really easy. I mean, you go over there, and their priorities is the game is number one, golf course is number two, and the golfer is number three. You come to America, and it's absolutely flipped. You know, the golfer is number one priority here. Golf course is two, and the game's number three. It's black and white. It's that simple. And I hope it's still that way over there. I haven't been over there for years. But uh, agronomically, I mean, it's scruffier, it's rougher, it's play the ball as it lies. But the example I will give you is after that Ryder Cup format at St. Andrews, we drove to Prestwick, and I wanted, to, and I was going to play Duncan with Duncan at his course, Prestwick St. Nichols, that afternoon. And then the next day we were going to play Prestwick and Turnberry. So 
I go over there, you know, superintendent's always up early in the morning, so I get my coffee and I go over to see Duncan, see what he's doing in the morning. We're not going to play till afternoon. And, and his maintenance building's just this little shed. I mean, I don't know how big it is. It wasn't very big. And he just happens to be walking out the door with the cup cutter over his shoulder. And I said, where are you going? And he says, oh, I'm, I'm going to cut cups this morning. And I'm looking around for the Cushman or the truckster. And I said, well, where's your vehicle? And he says, oh, no, we don't have We We walk. So he walks all 18 cutting cups. Now, I'm sure it's changed a lot since that would have been, what did I say, 83? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's changed a lot since then. So you, you had this where you started to kind of appreciate golf in a different way. Absolutely, totally different way. And how did your how did your day to day maintenance did it change at all because of that? Uh, you know, not to a great de- deal because of the de- demands of American golf, but. I always and I always kept this in mind, and I always told I've got a lot of guys that have come up under me that are superintendents now, and I always told them the same thing: that whenever you have tough questions, something you're not sure about, first thing you do is ask how it affects the game. You know, and if it affects the game in an adverse way, then you shouldn't be doing it. Now, obviously particularly in country clubs and, and single ownership clubs, you know, you got to answer to people and you have to compromise to some, but boy, if you can keep those compromises as small as possible, it makes a hell of a difference, you know. And then you asked me how I got into the architecture and well, by then I was, you know, I was well into it. I'd, when I was overseas, I'd bought Alistair McKenzie's book, golf course architecture you know practically memorized it and old warson at that period was not in any way wanting to do a lot of projects and i felt like i'd had it in as good a condition as it could be at that point and at the time, Norwood Hills had all the good players were there, so I knew them all from tournaments. And their golf course was really a mess at the time. Uh, and they had come to me, or a couple of them had come to me and asked if I would, had any interest. And I said only if I could do a total master plan for a – not a restoration, but a, a renovation of the golf course. And uh, so I put together a master plan for all 36 holes, doing a big-time re- renovation, building some new greens, and not ever taking out, not ever having less than 36 holes. And we had a part of the property that we were able to build two new holes uh, which fit in with the West Course very well. And at times, some of the holes were par threes, but there was always 36 holes. It's, it's interesting the way you talk about that. And I, I feel like when I talk to a superintendent about a project versus an architect about a project, 
the architects always like we we gotta just shut it down shut it down do all at once and then the way you know the pride in which you just said it, we had never had a, a hole shut we always had 36 yeah. holes open it's almost like a complete shift of a mentality coming from your slant as a golfer and a superintendent you didn't want to shut down the course you know put it together yeah and part of that was that i knew financially i wouldn't yeah. yeah i wouldn't never be able to pass the master plan if they could shut it down because it's the club wasn't a bell reeve or a st louis country club or an old horse and uh they they needed the revenue and they had a lot of outings uh to do the revenue because they had 36 holes uh but it was a challenge and it was really cool put together a really neat business plan uh, brought in a couple guys uh i mean my uh tim birch was my west course superintendent he's now superintendent of st louis country club uh mike Nall, my nephew was my east course superintendent He's now oversees all of Norwood. He's the head superintendent. Uh, my irrigation uh, tech is now superintendent at Fox Run Golf Club. So, you know, it, it was pretty neat uh, to see all this. And then, then I had a young boy that worked for me at Old Warson just out of high school that really got good with equipment, and he was my project manager um during this whole period and he still is there doing projects now they just they're going to have a champions tour tournament this fall and the tours wanted them to rebuild all the bunkers so he's busy rebuilding all the bunkers on the golf course now that's uh what are they doing to the bunkers to get right just giving them a little facelift yeah pretty much you know most of them are still from when i did them so Obviously, that was in the mid uh, the yeah. late eighties. So, Almost some of them are some of them are years. too short. Yeah, uh, you know they've got to be moved some if they work. Now, Mike has got a my nephew has got a great eye, uh, so he's not going to screw them up. Uh, but probably some of them. I actually I need to get over there. I just talked to him yesterday on the phone, and they've started. So I want to go over there and see how he's doing but uh they're still the bunkers that i put in so i'm sure the drainage is not good anymore is it, it you it seems like project work was where you really started uh, as a superintendent that's where you found the thing that you love doing the most absolutely yeah yeah i mean uh since then when i went to when i finally left Norwood and went out as GM for a few years at Boone Valley because they were they were a new club. I consulted on the on the uh, building of the golf course, uh, and then they asked me to come in and be GM. It was more to get things organized and started. And after uh, oh, I can't remember how many years, uh, I asked if I could semi retire uh, because I wanted to do more design work and. I I've worked on practically every club in town. I I've, I've worked on at least 16, 17 different golf courses. Uh I've done three daily fee routings that I've sold to some people that have been built 
didn't, you know, I was still working at the time, so I really didn't oversee those closely, but all the other stuff, uh, I oversee that on a daily basis. I mean, when I start a project, if it's of any size, I pretty much put up my clubs and, and I'm there from the day they break ground until seed goes in the ground. With uh, just having, talk a little bit about the rewarding aspect of having guys that work for you that you kind of come up through the industry and then go on to have success. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. It keep. I mean, I know I'm getting old, but it, it keeps me young inside, keeps me young mentally. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, uh, I learn as much from them as they learn from me because I don't stay up on all the new stuff like, you know, as, was when, as when I was working. So, you know, they're like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to spray this for this, and you got to do it. I said, what the hell are you talking about? I've never heard of that, you know. So, so it's pretty cool. But uh, just seeing them grow and mature, uh, you know, you've met a couple of them today. Uh, it's neat. Yeah, it's, it's so cool. It's almost like I always compare it to like, a, you know, college basketball. Coach K has got his like coaching tree. Yeah. It's like you start to see it with superintendents where there's these distinct trees where, you know, one superintendent will have all this, you know, kind of like a family. Yeah. And it, well, similar to Pete Dye and his architect's tree. You know, I can imagine some of the com conversations between uh, Pete Dye and Tom Doak. They had to be classic. Yeah, yeah. Bill, yeah there's so many of them. What was it like working with PB? Uh, you didn't work with PB. <laughs> PB was his own guy. If 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 you happen to, I just went along. You know, uh, my role was more organizing stuff when he was finished. But I was I was out there with him, and uh, you know he would. If you said, you know, wouldn't this be cool if you put this bunker over here or the fairway came in from this angle? I guarantee you it was going to come in from the other angle because he wasn't going to do what you were going to do. You know. It's interesting. Yeah. It's, uh... But uh, he was a pretty neat guy. Uh, he was a guy's guy. You know, we would, we would go to the local tavern and shoot pool and stuff like that. Good man. Yeah. He, he built some wild stuff. He's built some wild stuff. He, he was, uh, he was yeah. not afraid. to. He was not bashful when no. it comes to design. No. No. Rick Henson, who's the superintendent of Boone Valley, was... Uh, PB's construction foreman for I don't know how many years, but he was he uh, when he was at Boone he wanted to stay as superintendent, and so he did, and he's still there. But Rick has some pretty good stories about old PB. Yeah, that's I've heard some stories too about <laughs> PB. <laughs> that might need to be a whole whole the separate pod. Yeah, right. That's <laughs> uh, right. So uh, you you get into the the construction aspect of it and the the golf architecture, the consulting, and in in a way you kind of took on a, a, a more of a design build philosophy than you know the golf courses you worked at were mostly co design contractor. Right, absolutely, and 
Yeah, it, it's definitely design build, but the only downside that I have is that I didn't grow up on a bulldozer. I wish I had. Uh, I mean, seeing working with Kai last year and working with uh, the shapers that did uh, Bogey Log, where we're at right now, uh, you know, I just I get jealous of their talents and. But being there and, you know, giving them a sketch to start and then just let, let them go. And then, as Tom Doak calls it, editing as they go is a lot of fun also. Now for a quick word from our sponsor. Golfers get custom fit clubs for longer, straighter shots. Now using the adjustable technology on Toro's new Greens Master 1000 Series Walk Green Mower. Superintendents can dial in operator performance for precise and consistent cuts. The Greensmaster's telescoping handle has five different positions, so the operator's posture will be as perfect as a tour pro's, whether he's tall and skinny or short and husky. And the handle's rubber mounts have just enough cushion to prevent any hand movements from influencing the cut. Sounds like Toro solved the mower yips. Maybe they can fix the putting yips next. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. Now back to Roger Null. So the Bogey Log Club, this has got to be the most, one of the five most unique places in, in the States. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. Uh... So you told me to meet, meet you here and I, I pulled in and I called you. <laughs> There's one golf course. And uh, and I pull in and I and, and I'm like, where are you at? And you say, oh, you must be at the uh, the log club. You had come to the bogey club. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's two nine hole golf courses that were built by Robert Fallis. I mean James Fallis. I'm sorry. Um, log nine was built in 1909, and bogey was built in 1910. Uh, but they butt up against each other, and both club one log club is on the west side of the property, and bogey clubs on the east side of the property. Uh, so, number one, separate clubhouses. Separate clubhouses. Uh, both have about seventy members. Is all 70, 75 members. Uh, probably only forty percent play golf. Uh, I mean, I don't know if they have 3,000 rounds a year here. Uh, it's it, it's really cool. The golf course is only uh, – doesn't quite reach 6,000 yards from the tips. Uh, I'm going to be 76 in a few days, and I'm probably the average age of the people, the members. Uh, they might not like me saying that, so hopefully they don't listen to your pod. They, they might not know what a podcast <laughs> is, so – but, uh, like, number one at bogey is number four at log. Uh, or so, they can just play their own nine, you know? So, I mean, there's never enough play that it ever gets in trouble. No, no. Now they, they do have, uh, I mean, the clubs are more, were more socially oriented, and that's one reason the place really got ran down run down excuse me um and let go for years and years and years because there wasn't much pressure but finally uh 
there got to be a little more pressure, and there's a, a gentleman named Rich Millman who spearheaded of wanting to upgrade this place, and he came to me. It started in 2007. Was Did he come to you from Bogey or Locke? <laughs> He's a Bogey member. <laughs> and he had Bogey convinced to rebuild the greens, and but Locke didn't want to do it because... So you each got convinced two committees. Right, because each club has their separate uh, business. But when it comes to the grounds, it's split 50-50. So anything done to the grounds has to be approved by both. So Log really wasn't ready to commit to that yet. So he talked them into building one green, which is the ninth green for Bogey. So we built that in 2007. And... Man, everybody loved it. New green, God, so much better and smoother. And, you know, the other greens had shrunk, and they were old push-up greens that were soggy and wet. And So uh, they loved it, but they still didn't want to put out the money. So for a couple of years, we did I some... why you had me meet you at Bogey. <laughs> so we, we did some major drainage problems that they had around that, they knew they had to get done. In the meantime, you know, they had old Bermuda that was always dead and scrappy. And so he said, Rich said, well, how about if we get started on a zoysia program? So we started, a, I told Rich, I said, you're doing a bass backwards because, you know, you need to build the greens and the, at the same. But he said, there's no way we can get it done. So that gave me time to do to really study the place and do a master plan and i told rich that i said when we start doing these fairways we're going to redo all the bunkers and stuff and because the type of clubs nobody was out there watching to see what we did so i was just on my own i i did whatever i wanted to do <laughs> and there so we just did two fairways first and then we got escalating the project and Anyway, it finally came to where, wow, this is really cool what you're doing. We need to do the greens now. So there's a corner of the property that you can't do the fairways without doing the greens or you just tear it up getting back there. So they let us do three greens back there. That made four that were done, and all the fairways were done with Zoysia, and they're just going nuts now. And they said... Let's do it all. So 2000, that was 2013, 2014. We did the other 14 greens, finished up some fairway areas that we couldn't get to, and some, I guess, a few tees and some greenside bunkers and stuff, green surrounds, opened in 15, and it's just been a smash hit ever since. Did the was it rounds go up after that? Rounds did go up, not in, like not triple, a lot, just, just double. <laughs> m- much more guest play. Okay, you know, guys, you know, a lot of them were probably embarrassed to bring their. I mean, all these people were members at other clubs and played golf at other clubs, and they probably really were a little bit embarrassed to bring people over here because it wasn't much. I mean, there was trees and and honeysuckle you couldn't see from the bogey side you could not see the log side of the golf course maybe they liked it that way no they didn't (laughs) but they were worried when i started 
clearing all this honeysuckle and clearing all this underbrush. And uh, once they saw the vistas that were created, they just, it really got cool. Yeah. yeah the, the property is stunning. It is. I mean, St. Louis, I mean, the properties in St. Louis are great. It's just the soils. I mean, St. Louis Country Club's got great rolling property. Uh, there's a, a club called Westwood Country Club that I was fortunate to do, uh, uh, rebuild 12 greens over there. Wonderful piece of property. Really neat. So, what it, it, Has your philosophy on maintenance changed at all when since you've been doing these projects do you do you do you think of of superintendents different like the the way super the superintendent job i guess per se differently mm. I, you know i w- i would like to i would like to see more native areas but the hard fescues where they're still playable so you get so you can still have a groomed golf course with natural looking areas where uh, I guess the only the only thing that's changed a lot is that I would like to see more textures on the golf course uh, than just the one-dimensional green so that's something I, I know Tim Birch over at St. Louis Country Club is trying to do some hard fescues. Uh, all the native areas that people do around here, they do look cool at certain times when, they, when their colors change and the textures change, but you have to make them out of play areas because it just slows play down. You can't find your ball, and it's, you know, not much fun. Yeah, uh, nobody likes looking for golf balls. No. It's, no. that's natives the hardest i feel like it's supposed to be low maintenance but so many it's a lot of work it yeah. is a lot of work that's the other thing is is people say oh just grow native area you know a committee will say see it somewhere and it looks cool just you don't realize i mean especially in cities where you can't burn you know not now like boone valley their natives areas they're out in the country where they can burn and uh, that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Keeps out the you know the stuff that you don't want growing, the sucker trees and sucker plants and stuff. So, and the other thing when you did mention as my philosophy changed, short grass, yes, because when I grew up in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, you know it was fairway rough, approach rough. green collar then rough there was there was no short grass chipping areas uh pitching areas uh areas that repelled your golf ball Uh, my philosophy has definitely changed on that and the the work that we're we've been doing over at old warson over time uh we're starting to integrate that which was was Kind of tough for me at first because I didn't see that as a Trent Jones feature. But if you do it right, it just looks like it evolves and really doesn't take away from what people perceive as a Trent Jones design feature. What uh, 
in St. Louis, you've got a, a wide range of architects where you, you worked here on a, a course designed in the 1910s by Folluses. You've got Robert Trent Jones. You've got Reese Jones. You've got Keith Foster's stuff. Um, how is it you, you've worked at 16 different clubs around here working on such a wide range of, of different architectural styles and trying to make it fit in? Uh it, it's really not that it's not that tough you just you see what it is who the architect was um see what damage has been done by other architects or other greens committees over the years and then you just use your best judgment and try to stay within that style like norwood hills was uh, wayne styles golf course uh and I had Jeffrey Cornish come in and validate my master plan, and he walked the all 36 with us uh, and talked about, because Wayne Style did most of his work in the East Coast, and he knew Wayne's style of bunkers. So we stayed with that, but as far as placement and strategy, you know, I used my own judgment. The same here was a foulus. Uh, my bunkers here aren't deep bunkers, but they're deeper than what he had them. It gives more accent to the green complexes. Uh, I only had to change one green complex. I had a little bit different technology for those bunkers now and then, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and and money and, and, you know, what they did. Uh, you know, old Orson being Robert Trent Jones uh, in 2007, I did a complete uh greenside bunker renovation and you know i kept that in his more his style of architecture that i had seen and saw on his conceptual drawings uh, but i might have moved them in tighter to the green or when i could uh, things like that so you know you just have to be you have to use your own judgment but still be somewhat sympathetic to their style mm -hmm. talk about dealing with greens committees as a superintendent uh or committees at a club as a superintendent versus a gm versus a uh, architect uh i mean i've been i've been really fortunate uh, when i was at old warson we we never had a greens committee meeting ever. We never had a greens committee. I had one greens chairman that uh, he would stop down every couple days about 2 o'clock and say, how are things going? And I'd say, great. And he says, okay, I'm going up to the locker room to take my shower. And he'd go up and have his shower and his glass of whiskey and go home, you know. And uh, But that's changed over time. Uh, Tim that's over there now deals with them. And because I've done... I've been their consultant for quite a few years now. Um, I deal with them, but as an architect and being retired and the fortunate reputation that I have in St. Louis working in all these clubs, I can kind of, I can kind of block everything from the superintendent. And that's, and a lot of the projects, that's part of my job is that I kind of, 
I kind of take the blunt of I, I listen to all their comments and and let the superintendent be able to go do his own work rather than having to go to the office and explain everything on emails and stuff like that. So uh, it Is helps the superintendent a lot. Like emails and communicating with a committee versus being out on the golf course doing project work, doing, you know, managing a team. There's two different, completely different skill sets. Absolutely. And one of them takes completely away from the other. Right. As, I mean, that's the thing. That's one of the tough things with jobs is is when you have things that pull against each other. Right. Right. But committees, you know, committees are the toughest thing uh, at clubs. Um, I The only place I really had a lot of committee interaction was Cedar Rapids. And that was... In fact, it was so tough that it was easy because the Greens Committee and the Golf Committee were the, would have joint meetings. So now you got whatever it was, 12 from each or 8 from each. And, I mean, there's ideas all over the place. So basically you walk out of there with nothing and you just go do your own thing. But, you know... The one, the one pod that she did with, I think it was the, uh, the guy from Cal Club, wasn't Al it? Jameson. That was absolutely that was the best advice I've ever heard for any club president or whatever. Is that if the guy's raising his hand and wants to be on the committee, he's not the one you want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because he's going to come with his own agenda. You know. It's the guy that you don't want to that you don't that doesn't want to be on the committee. You want on the That's committee. That's the one you want on the committee. Absolutely, it was pretty incredible. Yeah, that was a absolutely fabulous pod. I, one of my buddies, it was a superintendent, said we were walking around a course and got talking to somebody, and you know we're going to leave names and locations out of this, but this guy was, you know, he's really. Really excited guy. He didn't really. He knew a lot, but not that much. And and he as soon as he left, my buddy, his superintendent, he goes, "That's the guy." Yeah. I go. I go. What? He goes. That's the guy that knows just enough to fuck everything up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as far as committees and and being a superintendent, the one thing I always just told myself is, you know, you you just got to go do your own thing. If they like it, they'll give you a raise. If they don't, you probably don't want to be there anyway. See, that's a good point. It seems like you were always one step ahead in your career of where you, you knew you pretty early when you wanted to go do something else because it was, and it was always a new challenge. Right. And I think that's where people get stuck in. And it's like sometimes the best thing is moving. Yeah. You know? I mean, when I went from when I went from Cedar Rapids Country Club to Old Warson, I took a pay cut. Just and I wasn't getting paid much anyway. <laughs> uh, I would tell you what they paid me in Old Warson, but I, the members probably wouldn't appreciate it because things have changed so much. Uh, that club has changed so much. It's it's a great club, let me tell you. But uh, I took a pay cut just because. This was the new challenge. It was 
my chance to see how I could do against a different group of people than where I was before. And uh, it was, you know, it was, turned out to be the best thing I ever did. But, you know, yeah. sometimes you have to be lucky, too. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an intersection of opportunity and hard work, usually, and a little bit of luck, yeah. I always feel like. I, I think about that stuff a lot. Um, so you, you, you're a big traveler. You love going and seeing golf courses. You're a regular at fried egg events. Which, I know. You know, I appreciate the, the, uh, you coming out to them, but what's on the list for, for 2020, 2021? Well, I want to get up, uh, I think we, we talked a little bit. I've, I've still got some in, in, uh, Wisconsin that I want to go see that I missed, uh, and as I told you, uh, I, I'm going to have to miss the the uh, steam shovel this year, so that just means I'm going to have to go back to Lasonia maybe this fall or something and see Mike Lyons up there. That's the best time to go. Yeah, and uh, I've, I've never done Michigan. I want to do the Mike DeVries. I want to go up to the Upper Peninsula, which I've never been, and Marquette, uh, Gray Walls, and then... My favorite person to read and listen to is Tom Doak. I love the stuff. I like what he says, and I've never played one of his golf courses. So I want to see some of his there. Go play that lo- the loop. Yeah, I want to play the loop for sure. Uh, Key, though, you got to spend – you got the loop you got to spend a couple days at. Okay. I think that's the mistake everybody makes is they play it – once one way, once the other way, and they're out. Or yeah. they play it once one way. If you play it the the second time you play it each way, you you just like everything. Because you're, you know when you play some golf courses, how you just are sensory overloaded. Right. And it's everything's like, whoa, whoa. And, and at that place, especially, the more time you walk around, the more time you really are just like, whoa, this is unbelievable. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's going the opposite direction, but sometime uh, before it's too late for me, I want to play Bally Neal. Uh, good spot. I mean, Kai, you know, said it's one of the most fun golf courses you'll ever want to play. Yeah. And one of the problems I have is, you know, I've been a member at uh, Palmetto for a lot of years, and that's so into my heart that – I go down there and spend time, and, and I've got friends down there. Tommy Moore, the old pro, uh, is one of my best friends. and I, can, I, mean, I just go around and around and around on that golf course. That's that's one that is, uh, if you can go play there, it's, there's not many better places than yeah. Palmetto. You haven't played it, have you? You just I have saw played, it? I have you played have played it. it. Okay. Yeah, I played it. Uh, on a, it was funny. It was, I was coming out of a Chicago winter. And I was playing with somebody from down there. And it was, you know, last winter in Chicago was just horrendous. And I was fresh out of winter. And it was like 55 and, and misting. And he's like, I, I don't want to. This is pretty awful. I don't want to play. And he's like, you want to play in this? I'm like, this is, this is nice. <laughs> I'll t- I'll tell you that what, place is unbelievable. Yeah. And you got you to gotta play it when it's at its best, when too. it's bouncy. Right, bef- right before the Palmetto Am, which is right in midsummer, it varies, but it's around the end of June or 
end of July. I mean, it's hot down there, but it doesn't, the humidity isn't terrible there. And let me tell you, the ball bounces, the greens are just, I mean, that's, it's just like what you said about the loop. All of a sudden you start seeing nuances that you didn't know was there when it was soft or green. Oh, it what was so a- good. What if they didn't overseed there, and it was if it if they let that that Bermuda go dormant? I don't know whether it would withstand the traffic. And one of the things, one of the things that keeps them alive and keeps them being a true, true golf club, and not do these stupid things that other places liable to do, is. Masters week. Yeah. They, that's really important to them. And they really need, I mean, they need it to shine. They need it to look good. I mean, they need these corporate people to come in. They need to see green. They don't need to see, you know, and if they get a bunch of rain and it's dormant, that corporate group might not come back the next year. It's it's funny. I I went to Pinehurst last year. Uh, It was around this time. And it was still dormant. And, God, it was so fun to play number two with the ball just flying. I'll bet. And, like, you know, the the thing that it brought back was it brought so many more shots into play around the green because you didn't get the grabby first bounce. Yeah. And it just, you know, it just skidded along. Yeah. And, it, I mean, that was and, – and then it just makes me think about – because I played Palmetto – Right before that, and it was overseeded, and yeah. you played mid pines. It was overseeded, and then you go and you play, and you read what Ross talked about. Ross loved Pinehurst because uh, it was the first place when it went dormant that he found that played like Scotland uh, in the states. Sure, but the overseed at Palmetto is a perfect example of the compromise I talked about yeah. when you ask what's best for the game. What's best for the game would be not to overseed. But what will that do to, to the, the rest of the year, the rest yeah. of the season? The club, will they, you know, will they have to do other things to make up that money? So that's a compromise that I'm sure is hard to swallow for some people, but maybe that is the best one. They tied it back perfectly, you yeah. know. Palmetto is like the most non-American club of any place I've been to in America. Yeah. Yeah, I remember reading an uh, older book. I think it was by Charles Price. You know how you can tell the difference between a country club and a golf club? When you walk into a country club, the nice wood floors are nice and polished and beautiful. When you walk into the golf club, there's spike marks all over it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I loved it. <laughs> that place, that that is a fun place. Yeah. I, I got to get back down there. You know, and talking to Tom Doak, about Tom Doak, I I hope to meet him someday because you know I was over there with Tip Anderson in '83, and in our foursome we played individual matches. I didn't play Walter Woods, but Walter Woods was playing the other person in our foursome, and I got to know Walter pretty well, who was caretaker. Yeah. And I know Tom That's... got to be good friends of Walter, and I have a hunch Tom was caddying. That year that I was there, probably makes sense. Yeah, because he he was 
soccer at he was at that first that was the first year of the tpc right 83 well i couldn't tell you you're better you're better dates i think that i think that would match up because i think 83 was when he was started to work with die but he was on he was in school still because he was doing the internship and then he he won the Dreer award right it, 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 the dates I'll, I'll have to go back and listen to because he lays out that in one of the podcasts i know it and i don't remember which one it might have been the first one ever could have been yeah this is a rough audio <laughs> Don't go back and listen. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the early audio days for the I'd, Friday. <laughs> I'd I'd love to sit down at a round table with a couple cases of beer with Tom Doak, <laughs> yourself, Michael Clayton, and maybe Derek Duncan to throw in a little controversy. <laughs> that okay. would be a blast. We gotta set it up one of these. We gotta get Clayton over here. He is he he is so much fun to listen to, Michael Clayton. He's brilliant. He is. He really is. The best is when you meet him. He's the same person that he is on the, like when you hear him. That's good. Like, that's you're like, that's it, the way he should be. I mean, the first time I met him, first time I haven't ever met him. I, I you know I obviously had talked to him and uh, had known him through the internet and had interviewed him on the podcast. First time I meet him, like the first. Words out of his mouth. <laughs> Andy, that place is complete shit. <laughs> I just laughed out. I mean, it was just like he t- yeah. it was like we were just messaging on a computer. <laughs> it would have been exactly what he said to me. I can so, believe it too. Yeah. Good guy. So Roger, thanks for the time. We'll have to do this again. We'll you maybe bet. set up that round table. Oh God. <laughs> You know? Count me in. Yeah. I mean, I don't even have to be part of it. I can just sit in the corner and listen. <laughs> we'll just put a microphone right in the middle of the table well, and see go. what happens. Yeah. So that'd be fun. Thanks, and uh, and people can email you. I don't, I don't know how else they could. You're not a social media guy. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I've got. You know, I follow people on Twitter, but I don't even know how to use it. I just read. <laughs> so, what's but, your, uh, do you know what your Twitter handle is? I think just my name. I'll find it. I'll I'll tweet it out. <laughs> God no. Uh, You're gonna have followers. Though. I, I have no idea how how it works, but uh, yeah, no. Anybody wants to email me, they can. All right. Oh, I need to give you yeah, the email. What's the email? It's oh, the email is Niblick Farm, which uh, Niblick is spelled N-I-B-L-I-C-K, uh, F-A-R-M at CenturyTel.net. Century is C E N T U R Y T E L. Awesome. Yeah. Feel free. I, you know, I, I love to talk about golf, any kind of golf. Awesome. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks.